Good evening, friends. This evening, we continue our theme of praying with Christ through the Psalms, turning from St. Augustine to the servant of God, Dorothy Day. But before moving on to Dorothy Day, let's hang on to Augustine's key insight. So I'll sum it up in this way. The church for Augustine is the community which Christ ceaselessly identifies himself with, pouring out his own life into it, above all in the Eucharist, making the church his own body, a communion holy and only defined by his self-emptying love, a communion so intimate that Christ speaks our words for us and with us so that we in our turn, might speak his words to the Father. On one hand, Christ's intercession means that he prays for his people by praying as his people. When Christ prays in Psalm 21, oh my God, I will cry to you all day and you will not listen to me. Beyond doubt, says Augustine, beyond any doubt, he was speaking of me, of you, of him over there, of her over there, for he was acting as his own body, the church. On the other hand, this act of prayer transfigures us. To Augustine's mind, when we pray the Psalms, learning to hear the whole Christ speaking, Christ speaking in us and ourselves speaking in him, we grow in our identity with Christ making us what we are, namely, the body of Christ. But our union with Christ, precisely as a member of his body, unites us to every other member of his body, to every other person Christ has united to himself in his humanity, so that he can speak with them and for them. In other words, our union with Christ through praying the Psalms gives us new eyes for recognizing Christ in others. This is hardly surprising. After all, the more you are assumed into Christ and in, into his identification with you, the more you are poured out in his identification with others. There's only one body of Christ. Before turning to Dorothy Day, it's worth lingering just a little longer with Augustine to see him make this point. At the end of Psalm 22, Christ, praying the psalm, knowing that he will be redeemed by God from death, vows to make a thanksgiving sacrifice. He prays, my vows I will pay before those who fear the Lord. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Augustine wants to know who these poor are, who seek him and praise him. Here's how his sermon went. Listen for the subtle Eucharistic language um, and to the way that we are formed by that mystery of his love in the Eucharist. The faithful know what vows he fulfilled. For he continues in the psalm, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Blessed are the poor, 
because they eat seeking to be satisfied. They eat because they are poor. But the rich are not satisfied because they are not really hungry. The poor will eat heartily. From their number came Peter the fisherman and another fisherman, John, and his brother James, and so did Matthew the tax collector. They were from the poor who ate heartily and were satisfied. And they suffered like him on whom they fed. He gave his supper. He gave his passion. It is the one who imitates him who is filled. The poor have imitated him, for they have so suffered as to follow in Christ's footsteps. The poor shall eat. But in what sense are they poor? Those who seek the Lord will praise him. The rich praise themselves. The poor praise the Lord. For the Lord himself is the wealth of the poor. The poor, for Augustine, are those who, having fed on Christ, imitate him. You see how, by meditating on the words of the psalm, you're led to consider your own mystery in Christ. Sacramentally, in the Eucharist, you are drawn into Christ's own poverty in order to follow in his footsteps. Christ's disciples are poor because having found all our wealth in the Lord, we learn to offer ourselves in his self-emptying love. As an aside, note that Augustine doesn't romanticize real, material, abject poverty, nor does he allegorize it away. The poor really do, he'll go on to say, have empty houses. They really have no riches or no goods stored up. But the truly poor are those who found all their wealth in Christ. In a homily on Psalm 4, Augustine tries to understand verse 2, which in his Latin edition says, When I called, the God of my justice heard me. In tribulation, you enlarged me. He wants to know what does this mean for Christ praying these words to be enlarged. And he says it doesn't make any sense to apply this to Christ. Because our hearts are enlarged when God is poured into them. When God is poured into our hearts, we are enlarged. But Christ was God. And he was never without the wisdom that he is, the wisdom of God that he is. So how can this be true of him? I don't see how this can hold, he says. But as his plea is, when properly understood, a token of our weakness, so also can the same Lord speak for his faithful when he speaks about the sudden enlargening of his heart. The Lord took their person, his faithful, the Lord took their person upon himself when he said, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink, and so forth. That is, that is why here too he can say, you have enlarged me, speaking on behalf of his littlest ones, who converse with God and has God's charity scattered abroad in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. Okay. Christ, having been made poor, even though he was rich, has now been raised from the dead and intercedes for many. We know this because he has been enlarged to the point that he speaks 
in his littlest ones, in the poor, in the hungry, in the naked, in the thirsty, the poor in whom the church will always find her Lord hidden. I worry that I'm making the point a little too abstractly by sticking with Augustine, so let's turn now to Dorothy Day, okay? Many of you may know about Dorothy Day, about the arc of her conversion from a kind of communist, radical political activist, her conversion and the birth of her, her daughter um, in, into founding the Catholic worker movement with Peter Morin. If you don't know her story, her autobiography, The Long Loneliness, makes for excellent Lenten reading as is her later works such as Loaves and Fishes, which I'm going to draw on primarily here. So far as I know, Dorothy Day did not devote any writing, any, any interpretation to the Psalms the way that Augustine has. Like we listened to a lot of last night, like we just heard. Um, but especially in works such as Loaves and Fishes and her later works. The church's liturgy is woven throughout them. She constantly refers to her daily practice of attending mass, of praying the liturgy of the hours, of praying a daily rosary with the people in, with the guests that the Catholic worker houses took in. It's such a constant feature of her work to reflect on just the fact that we hosted this person, we brought in this drunken, drunken man, we brought in this homeless woman, we brought in this family, we prayed the rosary, that night we prayed evening prayer. Rinse and repeat the next day, day after day, over and over. We attended mass first thing in the morning. Although she doesn't give us, so far as I know, any real interpretation of Christ in the Psalms, it seems to me that in all of her work, as she recounts and narrates and describes the people that she works with and the people that she works alongside and the poor that she serves, she's offering to us the possibility that in the Psalms, Christ is remembering these people whom she serves, that she offers her work in prayer at Mass, in the Liturgy of the Hours, in the praying of the Rosary, because she knows that Christ prayed these words and in praying them remembered the people she serves. That when Christ prayed the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prayed those words in remembrance of the poor that she serves. In that way, especially in Loaves and Fishes, the church's liturgy, the daily mass attendance, the liturgy of the hours, the daily rosary, it's a kind of training of the heart as she presents it. Dorothy Day was ahead of her time in praying the Liturgy of the Hours. Her participation in the liturgy extended throughout the day with her reading and praying the Psalms and long before John Paul II encouraged the laity to pray 
the divine office. She was eventually drawn um, to become an oblate of the Benedictine order, taking the name Benedicta. But one of her most famous quotes kind of refers to her practice of, of the daily recitation of the Psalms. She says, my strength returns to me with my cup of coffee and the reading of the Psalms daily. She writes in Loaves and Fishes, the challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart. And I suggest she presents the liturgy, the mass, the rosary, the divine office, as providing this training, as a formation of the heart in this revolution of a mysterious love, a, a love which was emptied out for us, which enlarges us and forms us, not for any plan of progress, not for any government system, the kind that she hoped for in her sort of communist radical days, but for love, that our heart is enlarged and stretched for that love which emptied itself, not for the sake of an abstract ideal, but for each person, each concrete person. The church's liturgy trains you to live as one whom Christ loved to the end and to imitate that love. So, speaking of concrete people, she writes, how to understand people, how to portray people, that's the problem, Day wrote. In Loaves and Fishes, she gives many portrayals. She portrays the often difficult guests that the Catholic worker houses brought in. To give one example, she describes Mr. Maurice O'Connell, originally a guest at May Farm, one of the early agronomic universities in the movement, and having come, like many others, prompted by a need of some kind, but he stayed on for the rest of his life, developing into an implacable tyrant in the household, a terror who took up residence in an outbuilding, a cabin at the gate, greeting people with warnings that the residents of the farming commune were thieves, drunkards, and loafers, a lot of them. And if anyone living on the farm exhibited any skill, Maurice would sneer at them. What jail did you learn that in, he would say. One man who, living with, living with us for a year, became a Catholic, was greeted with taunts and jeers each time he passed by Mr. O'Connell's cabin door. Turncoat, he would shout. You'd change your faith for a bowl of soup. In addition, he began to regale visitors with tales about how he was never giving any, anything to eat, anything to wear, despite the fact that he had a standing order at the grocer's for whatever he needed to pay for. He became violent and enraged, Day says, if anyone disagreed with him, though as a man in his early 80s, he could never really do any harm, she says. There was nothing naturally likable or lovable about Mr. O'Connell. And of course, he was not unique, and it raised the perennial issue of what to do about belligerent and difficult homeless guests and indigent, indigent guests that came to their house. She asks, was it really right to let such a person get away with these things? Isn't there something awfully smug about that kind of piety, about turning the other cheek 
inviting someone else to be a potential thief or murderer in order that we may grow in grace. How obnoxious, she says. She was given an answer by a priest she encountered, Father Luis Farina, whom she credits with giving her insight into this. She summarizes his words. The only true influence we have on people is through supernatural love, this sanctity, not obnoxious piety, so affects others that they can be saved by it. Even though we seem to increase the delinquency of others, and we may have been at many times charged with it, we can do for others through God's grace what no law enforcement can do, what no common sense can achieve. Friends, what Dorothy Day and Peter Morin strove to create in the Catholic worker houses was precisely the communion that one finds in the church in which, and I'm sorry for saying this, we find many who are not naturally likable or lovable, in which we find people who are sitting in my pew, who are singing out of key and getting in the way of my worship, and people who let their kneelers slam, people who don't take their kids out when they cry. The point is that the church is a communion which isn't based on our love. It's a communion of, in Christ's love for us. And in their extreme way, Dorothy Day, Peter Morin, and the other workers of the Catholic Worker Movement strove to create a culture of hospitality, which would be the direct reflection of that love, that love which we didn't give ourselves. To that end, she also paints portrayals of saints, not canonized saints, but saints who nonetheless have become in their being enlarged by the love of Christ for his littlest ones, have become what she calls fools for Christ, those who define common sense in the name of love. One example, she draws a picture of Mary Fraken, a woman with two grown sons who own fruit farms. She lives on 7th Street, though she could live in the suburbs. She took in destitute women in dire need of nursing care, direct personal action, accepting no pay. She nursed a diabetic woman, swollen, heavy with water, holding her up at night so that she could breathe, bringing the priest to her, looking after her body and soul, materially and spiritually. She looked after Susie, who had been burned by a jealous rival, pus oozing from her infected shoulders, cut from glass, from the broken windows that she tried to escape out of. She nursed Susie back to health of soul and body. She nursed Katie, dying of cancer, tuberculosis, and syphilis, her body now dung indeed, but once a thing of beauty, strung taut with life and pleasure, and now overwhelmed with torrents of pain. And Mary faces all this misery pretty much alone. No one who has read Loaves and Fishes could forget her, her depiction of Peter Morin, drawn with exquisite attention. Peter was one of a family of 23 children who purposefully owned nothing, who was often mistaken as a janitor or a repairman when he showed up to give a talk at a university or a parish. He preached voluntary poverty and works of mercy. He slept, she says, in his clothes and regarded bath, baths as a luxury. 
Peter, she calls him the self-giving agitator, teaching and haranguing anyone who would listen to the prospect of a society in which it was easier to be good. Peter, the manual laborer. Peter sitting in front of the blessed sacrament every morning after mass for an hour. Peter in his last years, incontinent and bedridden and, and unable to think properly. Writing at the time, Dorothy says, and now Peter is more than ever in absolute poverty. He has achieved the ultimate poverty. We must say it again because it is of tremendous significance. It reveals more than anything else his utter selflessness, his giving of himself. He has given everything, even his mind. He has nothing left. He is in utter and absolute poverty. The only thing he had left in his utter poverty, which he made Skid Row his home, and the horse market, his eating place, and the old clothes room, his, his haberdasher, was his brilliant mind. Now he remembers nothing. I cannot remember, he says. They asked him if he had offered himself as a victim, and Peter Morin wryly replied, implying that he had. We offer God so much, and maybe we think we, maybe we, think we mean it, and then God takes us at our word. Again, in Loaves and Fishes, Dor Dorothy Day remarks that, I was sure of Peter, sure that he was a saint and a great teacher, although, to be perfectly honest, I wondered if I really liked Peter sometimes. He did not like music. He did not read Dickens or Dostoevsky, and he did not bathe. In the summer, or when he was ill, there were times when it was hard to be in the same room with him. It was no natural liking that made me hold Peter in reverent esteem. And that's the enlargement, friends, that the Liturgy of the Hours, that the Church's liturgy altogether creates in us. No natural liking, no natural love, no love that we give to ourselves, but stretched by Christ's love for us, by his memory of us. We find a capacity to love others in their need whether they're likable or not. In the end, Loaves and Fishes is, as I said, a call for a revolution of the heart. And for Day, this revolution must be liturgical. She is an icon, I would suggest, of the liturgical movement's culminating achievement in the Second Vatican Council that the laity rediscover their priesthood in attending the Mass and participating in the Mass precisely so that as they are formed by Christ's sacrificial love, they go out into the world to perform acts of sacrificial love and then return to the liturgy to, so that their sacrifices might be joined to Christ. Daily Mass for her was not simply a pro forma exercise or a habit that she had formed. She expected it to have a real effect on the way that she interacted with those that the Lord had put in her path each day. She says in one of her columns in the Catholic Worker new newspaper, if daily mass and communion do not make people kinder, milder, gentler, it must be very saddening to our Lord. She anticipated Benedict XVI's words in his encyclical, God is Love, quote, 
A Eucharist which does not pass over into concrete practices of love is intrinsically fragmented. So, I want to suggest that her work of recollecting her experiences, the poor that she encountered, the difficult Peter Marin that she worked alongside, is offered as an extension of her liturgical prayer, not only strengthened by her, by her liturgical prayer to actually do works of love, but to offer those works back to the Lord in her prayer, to recognize in praise that each of these little stories is of someone whom the Lord has remembered and joined to himself. She might sum it up this way as she did in the Catholic Worker newspaper. The basis, the basis of the liturgical movement is prayer, the liturgical prayer of the church. It is a revolt against private individual prayer. St. Paul said, we know not what we should pray for or how we should pray, but the Spirit himself asks for us with unspeakable groanings. When we pray thus, we pray with Christ, not to Christ. When we recite prime and compline, parts of the divine office, we are using the inspired prayer of the church. When we pray with Christ and not to him, we realize Christ is our brother. We think of all men as our brothers then, as members of the mystical body of Christ. We are all members of one another. And remembering this, we can never be indifferent to the social miseries and evils of the day. So this Lent, as we renew our dedication to prayer, may we be enlarged by the Lord and his love for us so that we may overflow with that love into works of mercy.